This is TV Podcast Industries, and we are doing our rewatch of Penny Dreadful with the season one finale, Grand Guignol. Welcome back, fellow Darklings or fellow Penny Faithfulers. Uh, yes, we are looking at Grand Guignol, which is the season one finale, episode eight of Penny Dreadful, mm-hmm. the first series. I am one of your hosts, John. I'm one of your hosts, Derek. I like how you say first series because technically it is season one, two and three make up the first series and season four, which is... Petty Dreadful City of Angels is series two, right? Yeah. Is that, that the way it works? Kind of. <laughs> Always confuses you when, when you're in the UK and Ireland. We have TV shows that go for eight episodes and some that go for five or six series and some that go for five or six seasons. All that stuff, is, it can be very confusing at times. <laughs> but we're on to the final episode of season one of the excellent Penny Dreadful. I think this series has been great to rewatch, hasn't it? Definitely. Um, I have seen it in a new light actually i think as i said um episode seven has just absolutely leapt out at me uh more than it ever did when i first watched it Mm. um and i I think a lot of the intricacies have leapt out at me more than they did when i first uh watched it so um it's been great re- rewatching. Definitely, definitely. Um it's the new watching. <laughs> well, as we get to the end of our season one discussions of Petty Dreadful, make sure you stay subscribed to our podcast on tvpodcastindustries.com. And if you're not contributing to us over on Patreon, please go over to patreon.com slash tvpodcastindustries.com. The episode reviews that we're doing for Penny Dreadful are being released early over there. Uh, you'll get access to our next episode, uh, Season two, episode one, at first over there before we release it on our main feed on TV Podcast Industries. But we're getting through all 27 episodes of Penny Dreadful before Penny Dreadful City of Angels comes out at the end of April. So we'd love to have you join us over there. Let's get into the season one finale, Grand Guignol. The episode was once again directed by James Halls and written by John Logan. John's written all eight episodes of the show. I keep reminding myself to say his name, that he's the writer of each episode, because so often I forget, and then all of a sudden somebody else comes up as a writer for an episode somewhere. So I just want to remind, he did all eight episodes of this season. He certainly did. (laughs) Excellent. John, do you want to give us the synopsis for the final episode of season one of Penny Dreadful? Sure. When Vanessa recovers from her ordeal, she believes she knows where Mina is to be found, the Grand Guignol Theatre, where she saw the play. Samalcan prepares for their visit to the theatre that night by arming himself with a newly designed weapon. They come face to face with the evil they have been searching for all this time. Meanwhile, Brona is on her deathbed and Frankenstein offers to take care of the body. Vanessa tells Dorian Gray there can be nothing between them despite the obvious attraction they have towards one another. Caliban is fired from the theatre and returns to Frankenstein's laboratory, 
while Ethan's past catches up to him. And finally, we can talk about who Ethan is <laughs> in this episode. I feel <laughs> like for seven episodes, we've been pretending that we didn't know that Ethan was a werewolf throughout the show. But certainly on the rewatch, there's loads and loads of indicators that he's been the one that's been uh, slaughtering uh, people around the around town. Maybe last month at the last full moon, and that's why there hasn't been another killing uh, since that time. Um, but yeah, finally, we can talk about it in this episode of indications of the type of violence that he's subjected on other people uh, and that he has another darker side that we haven't seen so uh, nice to get it confirmed in the final episode of this season yes <laughs> and nice to finally be able to talk about it <laughs> yes absolutely john do you want to give us your big moment from the final episode i think it's ultimately um the relationship of malcolm and vanessa mm-hmm. uh, and how it moves through to the final battle uh, at the Grand Guignol, um, where effectively Malcolm makes his choice as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, this relationship has been fraught, brittle, antagonistic, and exploitable. Um, in, in some cases, you've kind of been wondering whether there's anything there at all between them Absolutely. and whether it's only that thin thread of, of Mina. Um, but I suppose the question I asked myself up front is, but is it redeemable? But I think as Vanessa understands where Mina is being hidden at the Grand Guignol. Um, I think she hears um, this phrase, there will be no happy end, the claw will slash and the tooth will rend. And I think we actually hear that at the end of episode seven and repeated. Uh, Then Malcolm and Vanessa um, really begin to move towards that. But it's much more frank. I think we, we get here that Malcolm begins to say that if he cannot save Mina, then he will end her suffering. Finally, yes. Fi- yeah, exactly, finally. Um, and we had that in episode five as well with Vanessa saying she is the only one that loves her enough to, to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this moment, um, Malcolm realizes that he may need to end uh, her suffering. But he, you know, there's this real frank conversation between the two of them, which is so brutal in, in his um, study where he goes, uh, I'm using you. You are invaluable to me. Um, but if I have to sacrifice you above my daughter, I will do. He will kill Mina to save her from suffering if he can't save her. But if in order to save her, it's to throw um, Vanessa under the proverbial bus, Mm -hmm. then he will do it. Carriage, John. Or, yes, horse-drawn carriage. (laughs) Then um, he will do. Um, So it's the interesting thing is that it's kind of, this is where I'm placed on the board. Um, But as they go, uh, as that company goes to the Guignol, uh, to the theatre, and can I just say, theatres are massively creepy when it, they're not lit and <laughs> there's no one in there. Yeah. I, I was just there going, oh no, need a cushion for this one. But There's definitely a few moments where you just jump, even even a moment where I think Malcolm's walking one way and Vanessa's walking another and Vanessa comes out of the darkness beside Malcolm and it's like, oh, okay, it's just Vanessa. <laughs> exactly. <fine. laughs> um, and this is where the, the, the vampire is here with his, with his brides. We, we get that because we have that lovely moment um where the the camera pans up after um caliban has effectively been fired by vincent from the theater because of events that happen with Maud, the actress but on leaving 
where the camera pans up through the rigging, through all the infrastructure, you know, the sort of the, the walkways where the riggers are, are working on, the mm-hmm. lighting, the, the the thunderboard, all that right to the top, and you have this vampire sleeping in the rafters uh, of the Grand Guignol. So cool. uh, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know he's there, and you know that at some point uh, they are going <laughs> to gonna get involved. Uh-huh. But... They have this really good battle uh, underneath the stage between Sembene, Ethan, and Victor. And again, they're kind of overwhelmed by the the Brides of Vampire, even though they've been firing uh, away. Uh, Sembene has a great drop through the trapdoor oh, with his cool. two uh, curved daggers mm-hmm. uh, unsheathed. I really, really like that. Yeah. Uh, but this battle royal under the stage, which ultimately is only resolved when Malcolm uh, manages to kill the vampire with his needle. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately, then it's Mina who comes in and takes over and takes Vanessa hostage and, and, and really says she doesn't want to be saved. Uh, my master. And so the question is, is the vampire that's just been killed by Malcolm, is he the master? Mm. Presumably not. Presumably not. Um, yeah. Because she is still... She's not wilted to the ground like all the rest of the brides underneath mm-hmm. the stage. So the suggestion here is very much that this isn't the main vampire. This isn't the Dracula, so to speak. Mm-hmm. The the source of it all. Always uh, a great r- a rug pull. In it it really is, yeah. isn't it? Because she's effectively saying that everything that she's done, where she's created this passageway uh, between herself and Vanessa... And between herself and her father, where she's visited them in their dreams or in uh, in their uh, visions and told them what they needed to do to save her. All of those things were her trying to attract Vanessa to her master so that she can be his bride, that she is part of the plan. Effectively, she's gone way yeah. beyond the point that she can be saved, because why would she want to be saved? She'll live forever beside her master, who she truly believes in. So it's a great little moment at the end of the series here. Yeah. And Malcolm in this moment makes his choice. Uh, you know, he shoots Mina so that Vanessa can get away and mm-hmm. she's lying there on the stage um, next to Vanessa where they've both landed. Um, and she goes, but I'm your daughter as he's got the gun pointed up. And he goes, I already have a daughter and shoots Mina and kills her, not mm-hmm. Vanessa. Um, and I was kind of like, yay, this is really good. Uh, good on you, Malcolm. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it's redeemed himself from everything that's gone before, I don't know. But I think there is that moment where he realizes that Mina is lost. Um, and actually, it's not about ending her suffering because she's no longer suffering. It's As you say, it's gone beyond that. Mm-hmm. So um, I kind of really, I, I, I'm glad that that got all resolved. Just a quick aside, the gun used uh, is a new automatic weapon mm-hmm. that uh, Sir Malcolm uh, gets from the gun shop. Um, but in there, we do have a, a nice little moment where he bumps into Madame Carly, mm-hmm. uh, who is actually Evelyn Paul from Brighton, uh, as she calls herself. But, <laughs> Everyone um, likes a little bit of drama. You know? <laughs> exactly, but ominously for season two she just say i hope we do bump into one another again and there is a lot of bumping in to uh evelyn paul in season two um which i think everyone will enjoy yes absolutely but definitely there's a, a look on her face as malcolm leaves that you know this wasn't a casual 
bumping into each other that happened. That was an absolutely planned meeting after their last meeting at the uh, at the seance. She wants to know all about Vanessa or all about Malcolm, one or the other. Yes, uh, from their last meeting. So uh, great to see the character back, and you know, I love that kind of interaction. I always like that, you know, where the veil is pulled back from the last time you saw the character. It's like. I'm not Madame Kelly. I'm actually just even Paul. Um, that's just a that's just a gig I do on Saturday nights for the rich. I had to make a bit of cash, you know. <laughs> kind of a kind of an interesting one. And um, that is the big moment, really, from the episode of the battle because it's all been building to the battle. But everybody gets an ending at the end of the first season. I do wonder when watching this, where they, you know, the way that that shows weren't renewed uh, as quickly as they are now, where you don't get two seasons to begin with. I was wondering whether they were trying to kind of give a big cliffhanger for everybody's story at the end of this show or were they trying to wrap some of them up and give a bit of intrigue as to what might happen because everybody does get an ending that's kind of my big point from uh from the final episode of season one and um, caliban being thrown, thrown out of the theater you always already mentioned but i love vincent's final moment with him where he gives him a truly heartfelt hug um Ray mentioned when we were talking about the first episode of caliban uh, arriving at the grand Guignol that vincent was this character who welcomed him with open arms into the theater um and they did have a place for him there and it was a home for caliban and that's exactly what vincent wanted for him but i love that his final line to uh to caliban when he's leaving vincent says to him remember us as better than we are um because he wanted this to work he didn't want to have the actors for example attacking caliban because they don't like the look of him yeah he thought this would be a safe place for uh, for caliban to be and it turned out not to be a safe place for him yeah i, I love that moment from vincent uh with the hug and, and just um you know he's tried everything he can and he yeah. is you know he's sad that he's having to say goodbye to to caliban in fact he says I prefer to get rid of her than than you, but otherwise I I am a slave to the public. Um, you know, it is more the actress they want to see on stage yeah. in these bloody horror shows. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, really nicely uh, done here. Now, in fairness, I do understand uh, Maud's reasoning for trying to get rid of Caliban. That's yeah, absolutely. Where he comes in with the orange similarly to the way that she came into his home effectively with the orange last time um he's trying to do the same to her to show that he cares for her but he's obviously taken the cues uh completely differently than how they're meant um and she's alone she's in this room alone half dressed i suppose as well um he makes reference to the fact that her boyfriend comes in all the time so why can't he do it and then she realizes that not only is he getting mixed signals from her? He's also been watching her in her dressing room. So, uh, and then he attacks her effectively. So, yep. you know, all of these reasons are totally understandable as to why Maud would try and get rid of him because she doesn't feel safe anymore. Um, but it is really sad for Caliban that his, yeah. the only place he's been able to call home, he has to go from exactly what he says to uh, Victor when he arrives back. Uh, I love that the, the opening line as it cuts into that scene is Victor going, well, you can't stay here. <laughs> it's like, but you created <laughs> yeah. me. You walked away and the only place i found that could be a home for myself they've kicked me out of so i'll stay for a while it's not it's not by choice i'm staying but i'll stay for a while and then i'll get out of your hair you know and it, it comes back as well almost to proteus uh this idea that you know these monsters uh these demons of proteus and caliban um actually aren't that yeah um you know I think victor has got the gun to his head he thinks that caliban's unaware of it but 
Caliban is talking about this futility of his request for a partner. Um, you know, that what he feels and it, because of his physical look is something that is not going to be reciprocated and it destroys his soul because of the experience with, with Maud. And he goes, why did you allow me to feel? Yeah. Um, I would rather be the corpse than the man I am. Yeah. Um, you know, there's this sense of futility around love because he will never be loved because of how he looks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Caliban says, pull the trigger, but Victor has that moment where he pulls back yeah. um, and rests his hand on his shoulder mm-hmm. and then becomes committed to effectively um, getting him his bride of Frankenstein. Yeah. So... You know, you see the the sort of reluctant Victor smothering Broner, effectively. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, remember, the whole central thesis of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is who's the monster, the monster that's created or the one that's created them. Yeah. So, uh, so having these moments with Caliban, having that discussion, why did you make me feel? Yeah, bring me back from the dead. I can be a walking corpse for you if that's what you want, but... Why did you give me my feelings back? Why did you give me the ability to feel when I can do nothing about it? You know, um, there's a, a lovely line from him, and that's why you think there's something between himself and Maud. There's that lovely line from him where he says, um, happiness is for somebody else. Happiness is for other people. That's not something I'm supposed to feel. I, I, I don't expect to live anything of my life in the way other people live it, you know? So a really understandable character in Caliban here, um, and yes, Victor, you know, effectively reanimating somebody without thinking of any of the consequences is what makes him his own monster in, in the same way that we talked about Dorian Gray being the monster that he is. Uh, Victor is the monster here. Um, you mentioned Brona. It is really sad that we do lose Billy Piper's Brona in the way that she dies. Uh, I thought it was kind of interesting that we have Ethan by her side at the beginning of the episode knowing that she is about to die effectively but he still walks out the door and goes off with uh goes off with malcolm on their next uh expedition he obviously knows he has to follow the that expedition but the but even that he would leave brona on her deathbed but he calls in victor afterwards to try and help alleviate her pain at least um and as you say john he uh, victor sends him away and uh realizes that brona could be the perfect bride of frankenstein now there is a little problem with this plan of Victor's. I know he doesn't have an extremely large circle of friends, but <laughs> but one of them is Ethan, of is Ethan, who is bound to recognise his former lover. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Not the greatest of plans. Here. No. And I don't think Ethan would be majorly happy if not only <laughs> probably does he not reanimate his girlfriend, the woman he loves. But he reanimates his girlfriend, the woman he loves, and passes her off to somebody else as well. <laughs> I'm not too sure whether Victor's thought out this plan either. What a wicked web uh, Victor has spun for himself here. I yes. think he's very good at thinking, you know, a couple of steps in the future, like yeah. five or ten minutes. But but what could happen if doesn't seem to be something that crosses Victor's mind very often. Um I also don't think Brona as a character is someone that's going to react very well to reanimation either. Maybe not, but I do think that the pathway of Brona once she is reanimated is hugely interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not what you expect, ultimately. Okay. Yeah. For for me, anyway, well, this is a rewatch. It's not so much about... 
um, trying to keep the spoilers down. I mean, I'm not going to go into it here, but... Please don't, because I actually don't remember but a lot she, of her stories. So, yeah. The path she takes is, is fascinating. It, it empowers her, and a mm-hmm. bit like... Um, that empowerment of Caliban earlier on in the season where he says, I am the future, you know, you are things of the past. Um, she most definitely uh, takes it and runs with it in an unexpected right. way, I think. Right. Definitely no spoilers for that because I'm looking forward to watching season two of the show again because I haven't seen that one in quite a long time. Um also, just to mention the closing of Ethan's story in this episode, or the opening, I suppose, of Ethan's story at the end of season one because we didn't know much about him. We knew his father had wanted him to come back to America. We saw some letters. We saw some mention of the fact that he was on the run. He was in hiding and I suppose run away with the circus is kind of what he did as the gunslinger traveling the world doing, uh, doing these, uh, these tricks uh, around the world and then left it to go into the employee of Malcolm. But we hadn't known much else about him. Uh, we see that actually Ethan's being hunted by the Pinkerton detectives uh, from America to drag him back to the US if he doesn't go willingly. He'll play cards. With him on the way back, he'll even let him win a couple of hands. But if he doesn't go willingly, they'll drag him back in chains. Um, yeah, they didn't plan for uh, for Ethan being a werewolf, did they? No, not at all. <laughs> um, I, I kind of like their two interactions in uh-huh. the bar. I think the first one, you know, you get a sense. Well, his daddy wants him home, so you're coming home. Yep. So his dad sounds like a very powerful man back in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, that's just a good old kind of bar fight, um, you is. know, of the Western variety. Just yeah. at the Mariners Inn on the docks in London, and in real life, that bar is the Stag's Head in Dublin. Yes, where <laughs> myself and John went over a couple of pints with our mates about a week ago. So it was so interesting to see because they didn't really redecorate the bar very much for the scene. The actual bar still looks very similar to that. Still the round tables against the wall and still the bar where you order your beers from. But it's so interesting seeing it with nobody in it because it's one of the busiest bars in Dublin. Yeah, it's, it's most jammed, nights, so. absolutely. So they must have filmed that at about 7 o'clock in the morning or something. Like <laughs> I would say so. It's jammed <laughs> normally. But it's a lovely bar. Go see it if you come to Dublin. Go to the Stag's Head because you can see in the establishing shots for the next scene, you can see the Dane Tavern, which is the bar directly across the road from it um, in uh, in that area of Dublin. It's just outside Temple Bar if you've ever been to Dublin uh, before you'd probably recognize that area but uh, go see it it's a lovely uh, lovely locals bar but very busy very busy <laughs> um I, I like when they sort of catch up with him again that he goes we'll chain you up like a monkey and he goes there's no monkeys here i just think it's a really nice line as you know you see his knuckles crack as he grips the table and he turns uh, his eyes are kind of those that bright sort of yellowy green as he's turning into the werewolf yeah. and blood against the window always good uh, and it pans back and there's that full moon over the mariners in yeah. um, which is really nice and you see him dazed the next morning mm-hmm. uh, as well so again like we had in episode one we had him dazed to begin with yeah. like in episode three i think it was as well after another killing we see him dazed waking up in the morning so uh, so a nice little touches that those are connected back to then um very tough job for any uh, makeup artist, I guess, or costumer, uh, that has to do a werewolf, um, to make sure that it doesn't look like Teen Wolf. So <laughs> always smart. And I think James Hall took the cue from that where you make sure that they're only on screen for a, a millisecond or a few seconds. So it gives you the impression that there's a werewolf that looks like a man with a wolf's face rather than having it on screen for a long period of time. So, um, if we're going to see Ethan as werewolf often in the next season, I'm hopeful it's more wolf than 
man with wolf's face because yes. I just think it's a difficult thing to pull off uh, without looking silly. So I can understand why they would hold it in the background for the whole season until this last this last moment. But he looks great. Like I think it's I think it's fine. It's not it's not on screen long enough to have any kind of criticism of it. I think it looks absolutely fine on screen for the amount of time that it's on screen but it's just one of those questions that's in my head going yeah but if that was a whole scene or if people were talking to him for a minute then it might look a bit off so i'm glad they did it this way in the show yeah the thing is what happened to the rest of the people having a quiet drink that night in uh the mariners inn oh, so dead. i presume yeah they're kind of slaughtered <laughs> oh, along with mr kid and warren roper the two pinkerton agents mm-hmm. yeah so uh R.I.P. Mariners uh, regulars. I think uh, you are done and dusted. I think Vanessa also gets her um, ending as well, where she goes to church and and has uh, a conversation with the priest of that church. And it's where I kind of just wanted to say, uh, you know, there's a kind of contrast with the priest in episode seven on the possession Mm -hmm. where she says, I believe in monsters. I believe in demons. I believe in the devil. Uh, which I think is one of the taglines of the show, actually. Mm. Um, and he, he talks about um, an event uh, in Wales where he came from uh, with a child who had been possessed and it destroyed the entire village. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, he looks back at her and he, he, he reflects to her something that also Dorian Gray has said is, do you really want to be normal? Mm. And she's not allowed to answer that as credits roll the lips part she is about to say something Mm. but we don't know Uh, and it's interesting as well that he's asking her the same question that dorian gray um has also been saying yeah yeah absolutely i I love these dispensing of uh of stories from past because usually you'd expect them to have a more uplifting ending than uh, what happened to the child that you were trying to help from possession no he died (laughs) <laughs> it's like yeah. okay not the most uplifting as story. did the rest of the village everybody yeah. else in the village yeah um but yes that's how season one of penny dreadful ends with an open question for what we know definitely is a season two because we have the uh the blu-rays downstairs for more episodes of season two um but i do wonder at the time you know whether everybody knew there was going to be a second season of the show because i think i mentioned in the first episode one of the things i found fascinating re-watching penny dreadful again is how much you're expected as an audience to know about the characters that you may not know about. Not everybody knows about each individual character that was in Dracula or in Frankenstein or in, um, or in Dorian Gray. You know, not everybody knows about all of those characters. So I think as the show had progressed, it felt like it was already a niche show. And by, by doing that, you create a niche within the niche for horror. So, yeah. um, so, I was wondering whether this was a foregone conclusion that I was going to get a second season, you know. Um, but they've set up enough that it's going to be an interesting season to see what happens with these characters. And they they have closed off the first season storyline about Malcolm getting his daughter back, uh, where he has made the decision that actually his daughter is unsavable. So he's going to take her out instead of uh, killing Vanessa to save his daughter or something like that. So any other notes about the episode that we haven't discussed, John? I think the only uh, one for, for me is the meeting of Dorian and Vanessa, um, you know, yeah. Dorian really is gets, gets the cold shoulder from Vanessa um, at Malcolm Murray's because she knows um, the events in his bedroom effectively opened her up to that second possession. Mm-hmm. Um, and she comes to the botanical gardens um, so to end their, their relationship, um, which 
it, it, there's a nice motif of the orchid that you have seen in earlier on in the season when they first met which is alive and starting to bloom is starting to die and wither yeah. um, as is their intimacy and flowering relationship mm-hmm. um, and it's ultimately that Dorian probably for the first time in his life Vanessa says you're experiencing rejection as he leaves and a dusty tear duct starts to reactivate uh, in Dorian's eyes as he uh, lets a solitary uh, tear down his face, yeah. which is kind of, is like, is amusing to him. He doesn't quite know what it is almost, but um, Vanessa um, in this moment is saying, we have to keep our distance. Yes. Well, um, he wanted every experience and he wanted experiences that he'd never had before. And that's definitely an experience that Dorian Gray has not had is rejection. So, yeah. uh, so I, I love that because it does feel like someone who's read the book Dorian Gray has gone. Actually, this guy needs a little bit more comeuppance than he did uh, within the book. What would be really good is if someone says, I don't want your affection, especially someone that he really finds a connection with. So uh, a lovely touch by John Logan of how he incorporates uh, Dorian Gray into this show, because Dorian's an atrocious human, as we've said before. So he deserves to have a bit of rejection as well. So. Yeah. Um, the only other two bits are when the two Pinkerton agents meet uh, Ethan in the bar for the first time. They make reference to cherry phosphate, which is kind of the precursor to cherry aid. Oh, okay. So unless the phosphate makes it nicer uh, and less tasting of artificial cherry, it's probably <laughs> awful. Yeah. Um, like and yeah. uh, ice chip uh, in because presumably he's got a warm beer in the bar that they found him in. Uh, and in the, the US, they are, are using this new uh, ice chips mm-hmm. or ice cubes, because obviously they in the past would have chipped off a much bigger block of ice. Mm-hmm. Just some nice little uh, bits of terminology around old drinking. Period thoughts. I like yes. it. I like it. Um, one other thing I just wanted to mention, just the Grand Guignol Theatre. I've mentioned before on the podcast, and I'm a huge fan of Anne Rice and her and her vampire novels, The Vampire Chronicles. Um, the Grand Guignol Theatre was an inspiration for quite a central moment in The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice, where um, they talked about the Theatre de Vampire in, uh, in Paris, a theatre where vampires effectively performed plays on stage using some of their victims and kill them on stage in front of an audience. Um, so another really creepy inspiration for art based around vampires, I suppose. So similar to this theatre in the show where the audience is reacting to the piles and piles of blood spurting out of uh, of the woman uh, who's in the play, but she's not killed of Maud who's in the play. She's not actually murdered on stage, whereas Anne Rice's twist on the Grand Goodnell Theatre was it's actually run by vampires who are performing their art in front of an audience. So... Um, uh, nice little touches, but cool that, that there is a connection between the two there. That's the end of our thoughts about season one of Penny Dreadful and episode eight particularly uh, in this particular discussion. John, what do you think of the second half of season one of Penny Dreadful? I thought this was amazing. Uh, I am definitely giving this five of cups out of five. Nice. Uh, yes. In reference to the tarot cards, which relates to sadness loss loneliness despair which i suppose at the time if you didn't think there was going to be a season two Mm -hmm. you probably were feeling around the end of uh the series um but it's it's weird because my recollection of the second half of season one when i first watched it was that it wasn't as good as the first part right 
and that has totally changed uh, and flipped on its head now. Um, I absolutely love the second half of this. You have in the possession episode as much, if not more, of a tour de force um, than the seance uh, in the performance of Eva Green. Mm -hmm. You have a flashback that is done so nicely and just layers the, the background of Mina, Malcolm, Vanessa, Peter, and they have real impact on episodes six, seven, and eight. Mm-hmm. You have the big battles in the in in the ship uh, moored at London Docks, mm-hmm. and in the Grand Grignol. You have uh, all these different complex questions uh, and motivations that really uh, get nicely rounded out and the realization um, as we may have suspected anyway that Ethan is a werewolf um, and is part of this supernatural um, grouping as well so for me absolutely loved it um, and I'm so glad they decided to do a season two and I'm so glad we're going to re-watch uh, season two as well because I know for a fact there is one moment in season two at least if I can call from my memory that probably almost made me not want to keep watching it was so <laughs> frightening in excellent. fact there were two there were two. Oh right excellent really looking forward to yes that. and they involved dolls oh I see Ooh, spoilers, spoilers. <laughs> Uh, overall on season one yeah it was great to revisit the show i do remember how much i loved the first season of the show and it's interesting isn't it that how things are different when you look back on them now you know we, we as i mentioned on the episode the the flashback episode of, of six um when i watched that it just felt like a period drama whereas the rest of the show even though it's set in a victorian setting feels like a gothic horror yeah, there's two different things to me. And I made the distinction watching episode six going, yeah, maybe the show isn't for me because they've just done the thing I didn't want to watch. Oh, kids talking about who they're going to marry when they grow up. Oh, isn't this great? Uh, but when you go back and watch these episodes all in order, um, you can see how important doing that episode was. So I'm really glad we've gone back and, and watched this season. And I'm really looking forward to seeing season two and three, because unlike you, John, I do remember season one of the show being great. And then I wasn't sure how I felt about season two and three. So I'm really intrigued because I've forgotten a lot about season two. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens in season two and then what happens in season three as well, because I know they're very different stories than the first season. Definitely. I think season three for me is the one that I can't recall in the same way as season one and season two. Season two definitely takes a different turn, but it's still connected much more centrally to the group that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just introduces another supernatural element, which is fantastic. Excellent. Excellent. We'll leave it there for our thoughts about Petty Dreadful. If you want to send us your thoughts, we'll give you a penny. Penny for your thoughts. Uh, pop us in some feedback to feedback at tvpodcastindustries.com or join us over on our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tvpodcastindustries. If you're not subscribed to the podcast, please go over to tvpodcastindustries.com, subscribe to the podcast over there, and you'll get each of our episodes as they come out on our main feed. You can also send us some voicemail if you want to hear your voice in the podcast, go over there as well, tvpodcastindustries.com, and record up to 90 seconds of your thoughts. We love hearing from you about your thoughts. Even if you don't make it in time for an episode that we're discussing, we still love to hear your thoughts about what we're discussing on the show. As we've mentioned multiple times now, you're probably sick of hearing us say it, we do release these episodes of Penny Dreadful first over on our Patreon. So if you want to get them the next ones first, 
might even be right now. We might have an episode up there that you haven't heard yet. Go on over to patreon.com slash TV podcast industries and donate to us at any level and you'll have access to any of the episodes that we have over there. Thank you so much for joining us for Penny Dreadful Season 1. Yes, uh, we will be continuing our rewatch of Penny Dreadful Season 2 on our Patreon account. And of course, over on our main feed on TV Podcast Industries, we are continuing our weekly look at the Star Trek Picard series Mm -hmm. uh, in our podcast. And this um, Penny Dreadful rewatch is all linking up to the release of Penny Dreadful City of Angels on April 26th uh, this year. Uh, But in the meantime, we are also continuing our weekly look at the Star Trek Picard series on our main feed. Mm -hmm. Please uh, check on over there uh, to listen to the podcast and our discussion uh, of the Picard series. Absolutely. Yes. Thanks so much for joining us for our discussions about Penny Dreadful. It's been great going back there. Hope you're enjoying it as well. As always, fellow Darklings, it's a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, can't wait to come back uh, and chat to you some more about Season 2 Penny Dreadful. But remember, keep watching, keep listening, and importantly, keep screaming. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye.